Welcome back to Unprecedential. I'm Adam White. On October 3rd, 1789, in the first year of his presidency under our new constitution, George Washington issued a proclamation of national thanksgiving to Almighty God. And among the several great and generous gifts for which Washington urged the people to give thanks was this, quote, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one now lately instituted, end quote. On this theme of constitutional gratitude, it's my pleasure to welcome my guest for this episode, AEI's Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies, Yuval Levin. Happy Thanksgiving, Yuval. Happy Thanksgiving, Adam. Thanks for having me. Well, as we were chatting beforehand on this theme of constitutional gratitude, you pointed out that a good place to start is the Constitution's own preamble. Why was that? Yeah, you know, the preamble sets forward the aims of the Constitution, the reasons for undertaking it. And at the end of that famous list of reasons, it says its purpose is also to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. And so we find right there the framers saying they were thinking of us. And, you know, I, I think gratitude, especially in its civic dimension, the way we're talking about it here, often is a response to that kind of unearned benefit that we've inherited because someone else did the work. And what the preamble suggests is that they meant it that way. They were trying to build something that would serve us long after them. And what else could we be but grateful to see that? I'll just remind our, our listeners that one of the most significant speeches you've ever given was on the subject of gratitude. It was your Bradley Prize lecture in what, I guess, 2013, if I remember correctly. And you dedicated that, your remarks on that occasion to gratitude. So maybe you could just summarize in a little bit your sense of gratitude in general, and then we'll get back to constitutional gratitude. Well, you know, that was a talk given to a conservative audience. And my thought was to think a little bit about what I really mean by conservatism as in describing my own way of thinking. And ultimately, what it means to me is gratitude. I think conservatism, in a sense, is gratitude. You know, we live in a world that has in it both good and bad things. Some people begin by reacting with outrage at the bad and wanting to uproot it. Other people begin by reacting with gratitude for the good and wanting to build on it. And those latter people are conservatives. You need both of these things. There's, there's a lot of bad to be uprooted. There's a lot of good to be built on. But I think that to start in looking at that world by seeing the good, for one thing, it's a function of just having low expectations, which conservatives tend to have. We assume that the human person is just fallen and imperfect, and anything that we human beings have achieved that serves us well and lasts over time should be appreciated. But you know, it's also a recognition of the difficulty of building uh, in a way that works. And so to start with gratitude, I think, is really what we offer our society as conservatives. And that's why gratitude for me is really near the center of my political outlook, quite apart from just a general disposition toward a world that is more than I deserve. You write, or you said, to my mind, conservatism is gratitude. And you, you added, after listing the things to be grateful for, we value these things not because they're triumphant and invincible, but because they are precious and vulnerable, because they weren't fated to happen and they're not certain to survive. They need us and our gratitude for them, or that they need us and our gratitude for them. I'm botching your own speech, you all. <laughs> they sure need us. <laughs> they need us. And our gratitude for them should move us to defend them and to build on them. We'll get back to defense and building in just a moment. But if conservatism is gratitude, and if gratitude is also at the sort of the center of American constitutionalism, who should we be grateful to? 
Well, you know, George Washington had an answer to that, as you mentioned in, in reading even the title of his Thanksgiving proclamation, which is to say that when we're grateful for what we have, we should be grateful to God. I think that's true and that that's an important piece of any kind of gratitude. But also civic gratitude of the kind that we're getting at is also gratitude to prior generations. And I think the kind of gratitude that moves conservatives very often is a gratitude to other human beings, quite apart from just being thankful for the given world as such. We're also thankful for what other people have done with it. And, you know, it's especially gratitude for unearned benefits, you know, for what Edmund Burke called it the unbought grace of life, the things that are just here. Now, I didn't do a damn thing to get them here, but I get to enjoy them and benefit from them. And they were built by people who aren't here anymore. And so I can't pay them for it. I can't even say thank you to them. All I can do is approach the product of what they've done with some sense of gratitude and let that shape my attitude about it. I think that's the source and the essence of our sort of civic gratitude. It's not in place of gratitude to our divine source, but it's alongside it, especially in our civic life. It's perhaps easiest to identify people in the past to whom to be grateful, especially people in the long ago past, so that we can forget the things that they've done for which we're not so grateful. But I wonder about gratitude among those of our own time. Sometimes maybe it's hardest to say thank you to those who we see up close. We're recording this a couple of weeks in advance, so in the immediate aftermath of the presidential election. But at a moment right now, with our political community so fractured, it's very hard to imagine gratitude in our own time among those with whom we disagree. And, and that, I don't know if that's a symptom of our fractured state or if that's a cause of our fractured state. Yeah, I think it certainly is both. It's also just a function of our humanity. I mean, I think being grateful to your contemporaries is always very challenging because you see the mixed character of what they do and what they offer. And not just that, but you often see the downside more than the upside in real time. And so I think that by putting ourselves in a little bit more of a historical context, we can also be more grateful for our contemporaries. It lets us see that what we have in common presents us with a kind of wonderful gift that we get to do this together. And that can make us a little bit more grateful for the together part. But, you know, politics is not just being nice to each other and cooperating and working together. It's right. uh, especially in a democratic society, even in a time not as divided as ours, it is always about disagreement. It's always about looking for the way forward by arguing about what would be best. And there's no question that gratitude is difficult in that kind of situation. It's important to stop now and then and try to think about what we're grateful for in our contemporaries. But I think we're all pretty bad at that. And we can hope that you know our children and their children might be grateful for what we're doing together. Let's get back to the point that you raised in your Bradley remarks about defending and building. Maybe the, the single greatest American speech on this topic comes from Abraham Lincoln. Of course, he wrote several on this theme, and we'll talk about a few. But let's start with the, the first, his address in 1938, before the Young Men's Lyceum of Springfield on, on the perpetuation of our political institutions. And I apologize in advance to our audience today. There's going to be a few quotes in this podcast. I apologize in advance. Lincoln, at the very beginning of this speech, and you've all, you know this better than I, but how old is Lincoln when he's giving this address? He's 27, so it's yeah. 1839. He's a young lawyer in Springfield, and he's invited basically by a boys' high school in town as part of a series of speeches where they just invited prominent people in Springfield. And most of those people talked about their life or their career, talked about their grandpa. And here's Abraham Lincoln, and he had something else in mind. 
Imagine being next in line on the agenda after this one. <laughs> but Lincoln, in the, the very opening lines of, of his address, he says, quote, we find ourselves in the peaceful possession of the fairest portion of the earth as regards extent of territory, fertility of soil, and salubrity of climate. We find ourselves under the government of a system of political institutions conducing more essentially to the ends of civil and religious liberty than any of which the history of former times tells us. We, when mounting the stage of existence, found ourselves the legal inheritors of these fundamental blessings. We toiled not in the acquirement or establishment of them. They are a legacy bequeathed to us by a once hardy, brave, and patriotic, but now lamented and departed race of ancestors. That's the way he puts it, legal inheritors of yeah. these blessings. I can't remember if it was Richard Brookheiser who, did he title his book on Lincoln, The Son yeah. of the Fathers? So Lincoln frames this in terms of inheritance. How should we think about that? Yeah, I think it's a wonderful way to put it. And it gets a little bit at the complexity of this kind of gratitude for those who came before. You know, our inheritance is what we're left with. It can be good and it can be bad, and it's both. And in a funny way, Lincoln, one of the striking things about that speech is that he feels gratitude almost as a burden. There are parts in that speech where he says the founders had it easier than we do because they could start something new. And our challenge is to perpetuate what they left for us, to sustain it, to strengthen it. It's sometimes less rewarding, less exciting than revolution, than starting fresh. And it is ultimately a work of, of gratitude. But sustaining that is the essential task of his generation as he sees it. And Lincoln called that speech the perpetuation of our political institutions. I think Lincoln could have called every one of his speeches the <laughs> perpetuation of our political institutions. That's, mm -hmm. that's a pretty good title for the Gettysburg Address. It's a good title for both of his inaugural addresses. It was on his mind. You know, he worried about it constantly and very much from the point of view of how to make the most of what we've inherited and how to perpetuate and sustain it for the future too. Interestingly, Lincoln, while it's true, every, all of his speeches could be on this subject. He also recognized that to perpetuate the institutions requires sometimes a, a rebuilding of them, right? Yeah. Most famously, the, the new birth of freedom. And so it, it's defense and it's maintenance, but it's also the, the building out of this, but in a way that you try to remain true to the frame, to the original intention of it. The cheap metaphor would be, cheap analogy would be, you know, inheriting a beautiful home and trying to not just keep it from decaying, but maybe fixing the parts that you see weren't working, building on where possible, at the same time, staying true to the original. Yeah, and doing it on the frame, model so of the original. You know, Lincoln starts so often by thinking about what the founders were trying to do, not so much by describing what they did, but by beginning from their premises. And I think that's by way of trying to fix what's broken by building on the model of what's there. In his particular moment in history, it was an enormous challenge. I mean, you could easily not at all have been grateful for the inheritance you got, which stuck you in a situation that was enormously challenging and difficult. But Lincoln always saw himself, I think, as charged with this obligation to sustain and build on what he certainly thought Americans ought to be grateful for. In the opening lines, he ends by saying, this task of gratitude to our fathers, justice to ourselves, duty to posterity, there again, posterity and love for our species in general, all imperatively require us faithfully to reform, to perform this task. And by the way, on, on inheriting not just the good, but the bad, this, this address is full of criticism of the state of the country that yeah. they've inherited. And there's two challenges at hand, right? One is that the founding fathers have departed the scene, and in its place, 
is he describes the, the he laments the operation of a mobocratic spirit, the fundamental breakdown of the political society in the late 1830s. He says, let me quote again, by this operation of this mobocratic spirit, which all must admit is now abroad in the land, the strongest bulwark of any government, and particularly of those constituted like ours, may effectually be broken down and destroyed. And he's referring here to what he calls the attachment of the people, right? That over time, it's this breakdown of the attachment to the people, again, attachment to what they've inherited, and I think attachment to one another. Yeah, I mean, Lincoln, in a wonderful way there, describes the vulnerability of social order to this kind of attack. And it's really, it's very challenging what he says there, because mobocratic spirit, you could easily just understand as, well, the problem with these people is that they're violent, that they threaten the innocent, that they're doing something unjust. But Lincoln just pulls that rug right out from under you in that speech. And he says, no, actually, they're right. The people they're attacking really are bad people. This guy killed somebody and, you know, the, the, the gamblers are the worst people in any society. The problem here is that they're lawless and a failure to respect the law, even in defense of the people's will, and even when it's just, is a threat to society's endurance and future. There's a way, and I think it's not to stretch too far, really, as seeing him attacking something like we would think of as a populist spirit when he says mobocratic. Not just that it is violent, but that it wants directly to implement the will of the people without the intermediating influence of the law. And he ultimately argues that this makes it impossible to sustain society, that it causes everybody to look down on the law, that people who are inclined to violence will be encouraged by it to violence. People who are inclined to be good and orderly will come to think that the law is not there to protect them and isn't respectable. And so you lose the best people and the worst people. And ultimately, that means that in order to sustain what we have, we have to sustain some kind of commitment, not only to social order, but to law. It's a very timely speech in a lot of interesting ways. It really points to something like a permanent challenge that has to be answered with some form of, of gratitude or veneration for what we've been handed down, even when it needs to be taken on, even when it needs to be improved. There's a way to do it. And that way is itself the inheritance of the Constitution. If I could drop a footnote in a podcast, I'd drop one here. And I'd encourage listeners, if they want to explore this more, a great place to go is a conversation that our friend Diana Schaub had the last couple of years, I think, with, with Bill Crystal on Bill's yeah. eponymous conversations with Bill Crystal. And so I'd really encourage listeners to, to seek that out because they had just a but Diana is such an unparalleled scholar on these subjects, and, and that conversation is amazing. That distinction you just drew between populism and the mobocratic spirit, it reminds me in a way of the point Lincoln makes years later in his first inaugural address on the subject of the Dred Scott case in the Supreme Court, where he, he's careful to draw a distinction between the people maintaining control over government, even maintaining control over constitutional questions, what the Constitution means, how it ought to be construed but not at the cost of the Constitution itself. He's in favor of the people vindicating the Constitution, not their sense of the Constitution, but vindicating the Constitution. And he draws the distinction between just disregarding the Supreme Court's decisions, even when they're wrong, smashing down the walls and, and rescuing Dred Scott, who was wrongfully imprisoned and, and kept in slavery by the Supreme Court. So he draws that distinction there. But something you said a moment ago turns my mind to the next subject I had in mind, which is 
how to think about this constitution. And in Federalist 49, James Madison offers us the thought of a veneration, a veneration of the constitution. He writes, on the need for a stable constitution, not a malleable one, not the sort of etch-a-sketch, you know, draw on it and then shake it up constitution that Thomas Jefferson might have preferred. Madison writes in Federalist 49 that an unstable constitution would, quote, deprive the government of that veneration which time bestows on everything, and without which perhaps the wisest and freest governments would not possess the requisite stability. It's interesting. I guess when I think about that phrase, I usually think, veneration of, of the constitution. But yeah. here he is talking, at least the word he uses is more general. It's, it's government. Should we venerate our government, Yuval? You know, Madison there, as so often for me with Madison, he, he's just one tick too cynical because he says that time bestows veneration on everything. And so in a sense says, you know, give it enough time and everything will be, anything could be treated as venerable and therefore could serve stability, even if it's not any good. I think that's actually not exactly gratitude, except in as much as it is gratitude for what's persisted, right? So you might say a kind of Darwinian gratitude, where if this has lasted this long, there must be something great about it. So we should yeah. appreciate it. There's something to that. but And veneration is related to gratitude. But I think gratitude is, is rooted in an assessment of the worth of the thing, not just its age. And it seems to me that that distinction is necessary for us now because we constantly face the argument that the age of the constitutional system is actually a bad thing, that you know, we can't just live by this thing that was written at the end of the 18th century. What do they know about us and what do we care about them? And one answer to that is veneration and respect. And you, know, you could even give that kind of Darwinian answer of, well, it served us well for two centuries. Surely there's something here. But I think we also have to be in a position to give a substantive answer that says that this recognizes something of the, of the character of the human person in the deepest sense and of the political community, and that it's right, that it's wise, as wise now as it was then, which does require from us some judgment about its value. And so I, I would go further than Madison. I, I, I don't think that it's enough to say that if only this thing lasts a while, then it'll be secure. I think it deserves to be secure. And if it didn't deserve to be secure, then it shouldn't be. Well, maybe he's saying that it will only survive long enough to be venerated if it's worthy of that, yes. if it's worthy of survival. Yes, I think that's right. But what he's describing there, particularly in Fairless 49, is a kind of how to create the right attitude around yeah. the law and the Constitution. And he's not wrong, but I think there's something more profound than that at the root of our veneration for what he did. There's an appreciation of its wisdom that I think is substantive. We'll get back to some historical examples in a moment, but you, on this question about drawing the right judgments in terms of gratitude, not just veneration, but gratitude, you, as, as somebody who directs a center on social, cultural, and constitutional studies, what would you tell a young person, a college student, a law student, somebody who's dedicating their career to law, or even just to a young citizen? How would you instruct them or suggest to them to make those judgments between what's worthy of gratitude, what commands gratitude, and, and what deserves or requires reform? Well, you know, I think we have to begin from a broad view of the challenge we face, which is a challenge, again, that's rooted in the nature of the human person, that's rooted in the complexity of the life of any society, 
we have to ask ourselves, what will give us the tools to address the problems we have, to deal with injustice, to take up practical problems, and to help people achieve those things that the preamble to the Constitution says we're supposed to be trying to achieve? I think when you consider our system from that point of view, and not by beginning from what it doesn't do well and concluding that it therefore needs to be thrown out, but by beginning from what it does do well and has done well and ask yourself why, there's a huge amount for us to build on here. And it's enormously important to see that and to begin from that premise. And, and you know, it's a kind of timeless premise. It says the questions that were confronted by the framers that are taken up so well in the Federalist, those are still our questions. And we're still looking for ways to balance these things that are all good, but our intention, like freedom and equality and good government and stability and order. The question underlying the Constitution is how can you keep these things in balance? How can you do them all at the same time? And we've got a very complicated system that is set up to achieve that. It's not always going to be perfect at doing it, but when we judge it to have failed, we have to judge it in light of that purpose of what it's trying to achieve and of the difficulty and complexity of it. So that just leaves me, I mean, it's no surprise, I'm a conservative, but it leaves me very, very careful and wary about making fundamental changes or just saying, the Electoral College is stupid. Let's just elect the president. You have to ask yourself, why is it there? Mm -hmm. Think about what it's preventing and what it's enabling, what things would look like without it. And at the end of that kind of process, I think you would end up wanting gradual incremental reform much more often than anything like throwing it out and starting over. Another great irony, of course, is that the framers, they did throw a lot out and start over, right? Madison, when he's writing a veneration in 49, and the obvious irony is this is coming as they're replacing the Articles of Confederation and having won a war of revolution, throwing off British government in general. So how should we think about that irony? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, they, they were trying to do better and they, they did do that by breaking the bonds that had attached them to British history and British life. I think it is also true, though, that they did that by trying to reach for the best of what their tradition offered them. And the striking thing about the Federalist and about Madison's thinking in general and Hamilton's also is how it tried to be continuous with positive examples from the history of the West. You can find this in the Declaration of Independence, too, for all that it asserts these very radical ideas and makes a break. It is also reaching to the very tradition that the colonies had lived with and saying, we've been denied these rights we've had for a century here and more, and we want them back. That combination of the conservative and the progressive, of the revolutionary and the conservationist is the way to make progress. I mean, I think you have to think about how to improve things, not whether they need improvement, but how. And the how often points you to the necessity of continuity. And I think that's very much connected to gratitude. And the example of the Declaration is, is great because the things that you just referred to, the entire sort of Act Two of the Declaration of Independence, where they go through this bill of indictment against the king, it's not that they are invoking sort of broad principles. Of course, they do at the very outset of the Declaration, but they are invoking practices, institutions, the basic structure and customs of the government that they felt was yeah. being deprived of them. Today, I think there's often a, a spirit of reform that's framed in terms of either the principles of the Declaration or the, the majestic generalities of some of the Constitution's broader, more broadly worded rights, and saying we need to reform our institutions drastically to get to those majestic generalities. 
And of course, I'm all in favor of the majestic generalities too. But in that sense, I suppose the framers or the signers of the Declaration of Independence were very much proved to be similar to Lincoln in the sense of demanding not just the maintenance of abstract principles, but the maintenance of the institutions and customs that embodied and gave life to those principles. I think that's right. They were exceptionally practical in that respect. I think they understood the difficulty of sustaining these kinds of social orders and institutions. And they resolved the tension between the radical principles and the need for continuity by just saying yes to both. And in fact, that's you can think of that as their as their kind of method in framing the constitution more broadly, which is you have these opposite ideas of say, you know, is the president of the United States a leader or a clerk? Right? This is an old question now in political science. And the answer in the, that the Constitution gives is yes. The president of the United States is a leader and a clerk. The Constitution opts for both democracy and republicanism. It both empowers the people and it protects society from the people's foolishness. It both empowers these councils of the wise and protects society from the kinds of mistakes they make. And the tension between these things is just lived as a space in which to govern ourselves. It's not treated contradiction is not treated as proof of falsehood. It's just taken as a way of life. And that can be challenging. It's unsatisfying sometimes, but I think it's one of the great accomplishments of the constitutional system. And, and the preservation of institutions in this, in this way, it requires a certain measure of humility. Today, we'd call it, what is it, epistemological modesty or something. Because it's easy to point to the principles and say, those are good principles or those are bad principles. It's not always self-evident that a particular institution, especially one that we ourselves had no role in creating, that it is the best way to preserve those principles. And so it's easy to say that in the spirit of this very broadly worded constitutional principle or this principle of liberty, we need to tear down all these other things because we can't go back and rerun the experiment and know for certain that this new way is better than the old one. Yeah, that's right. And and so it does require that we start with, as you say, a sense of humility. I think humility is very closely connected to gratitude. The idea basically being that we probably can't do better than this from scratch. So if we're going to try, if we're going to throw this out, we need to be very sure that this has failed because otherwise we would be wiser to improve it, to fix it, than to throw it out. Again, it's unsatisfying, but it begins from, a, from the premise that the human person is a lowly thing. And that's unsatisfying too. It just happens to be true, I think. That is interesting about humility and gratitude, right? How often would we say in humble gratitude? When you said that, I look back at Washington's proclamation and he says it over and over again, to be grateful for his benefits and humbly to implore his protection, that we may all then unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks and so on. It's easy to have gratitude for, even to venerate those things that are obviously good. The challenge then, as we've said already, is in having gratitude for the things that don't even look necessarily like sort of a mixed bag, but in general look awful. On this, I think in American history, as our colleague Elaine Allen pointed out, there's in our conversation ahead of time, there's nowhere better to look on this subject than in the, the speeches of Frederick Douglass, who knew as well as anybody, the sheer evil that was brought down upon men and women in slavery. And yet even he finds something grateful for this. And we see this in a few places, not grateful for that, grateful for the constitution and the principles that 
undergirded it. We see this in, throughout his writings, but most famously, perhaps, in his address in 1852, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. And he begins by pointing out that white men have much to be grateful for in celebrating the Fourth of July. Pride and patriotism, not less than gratitude, prompt you to celebrate it and to hold it in perpetual remembrance, he says. But for the slaves, of course, it's much more difficult to be grateful for any of this. And as he points out, what to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. He goes on, there's not a nation on earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. And yet, and yet, when he goes through his list of the things to criticize, he gets to the Constitution and he finds their gratitude. He says, I differ from those who charge this baseness of the present situation on the framers of the Constitution of the United States. It is a slander on their memory, at least, so I believe. And he says, the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. Read its preamble, consider its purposes. And there he finds something to be grateful for and something to be hopeful in. Yeah, it's an extraordinary thing. And, and you know, it gets at what can be the most challenging facet of a kind of civic gratitude, which is that it's a way of looking in your own tradition for ways of addressing what's wrong with your own tradition, of attributing evil to hypocrisy rather than to wickedness. That can be a very powerful thing, you know, and Douglas sort of created a tradition of it. I mean, you can think of Martin Luther King standing on the mall and saying not to hell with this country, which he could have said, but saying instead, this country is failing to live up to its ideals and look how great those ideals are and how great it would be to live up to them. That's both an extremely powerful rhetorical strategy, but I think it's also a very, very profound kind of approach to truth. Douglas, even given the, the horrendous experience he had had of life in America, the way he had been mistreated, abused, treated as less than a human being, he could see that there was in what had come down to us some good that could be used to address the bad and saw himself somehow as a steward of an inheritance, even while he understood its very darkest and deepest inadequacies and evil. And, you know, I think he also came to understand the commitment of some Americans to make that good a reality as an object of gratitude. Another speech of his many years later, which he gave at the unveiling of the Lincoln statue in in D.C., what's now called Lincoln Park in Washington, in 1876, I think it was, that speech is actually called an expression of gratitude for freedom. And he talks about what he calls that sentiment of gratitude and appreciation And the very end of that speech, he says, it's a sentiment that can never die while the republic lives. So that for all that there is to correct and improve, there's also a foundation that can help us do that, that we should be grateful for and examples of sacrifice that we should appreciate. As it happens, that was the very next speech on the stack. You're right, 1876, nearly 25 years after that earlier address. What strikes me reading that again today is He describes gratitude first and foremost as one of the noblest sentiments that can stir and thrill the human heart. He goes on to say, as you said, it's the sentiment of gratitude and appreciation, which often in the presence of many who hear me has filled yonder heights of Arlington with the eloquence of eulogy 
and the sublime enthusiasm of poetry and song, a sentiment which can never die while the Republic lives. And as you said, it's a, it is gratitude for freedom, but also indispensably gratitude for those who made freedom possible. Here it's how fitting we now have Douglas in gratitude to Lincoln and to the Union that vindicated the principles of the Declaration. You know, it gets at your earlier question about whether we can be grateful to our contemporaries. I think if we were lucky enough to live with the Lincoln, we might know that and we would be grateful for our contemporary. Douglas certainly had someone to be grateful for, and Douglas's own contemporaries had a lot to be grateful for in him, and I think they knew that too. And by the time we reach 1876, Douglas was proved correct. The war to end slavery, the war couldn't have ended slavery, but for the strength of the Union, which was rooted in the Constitution, the Constitution that made not just the government possible, but really laid the groundwork for national economic strength, national political cohesion. All of that together is what it ultimately took to defeat the, the seceding slave states. Yeah, that's right. And, and so, in a sense, the, the, the kind of civic gratitude we're talking about here was both the cause and effect there. It's what ultimately made it possible to succeed, but it was done in the service of exactly that. And, and it created, as Lincoln saw too, and you can see this in the Gettysburg Address too, that it became the foundation for a renewal of that sense of commitment and gratitude because then you can be grateful for the sacrifice of people who died to sustain, to perpetuate our institutions and our way of life. And that kind of gratitude comes more naturally to us. We know what to do with it. Yeah. And there, I referred earlier in, in our chat to the new birth of freedom, right? This is where it comes in the very same lines where he says, it's impossible for us to consecrate the field because the fallen soldiers already have done that. We resolve these dead shall not have died in vain, that the nation shall have a new birth of freedom and the government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from the earth. So here we have gratitude and preservation, but again, the building of something new in the spirit of the thing we're preserving. I think that's right. And you know, the element of it that we haven't touched on much is the one we sort of started with, which is the extraordinary capacity of the framers to think and talk about posterity in that moment when they did their work. I think ultimately what it means to talk in terms of perpetuation, the way that Lincoln did, and what gratitude for an inheritance points toward is a concern for the future. That to me is part of why we so badly need now some sense of gratitude for our traditions in our own political life, because our politics is just incredibly devoid of concern for the future right now. How so? Um, well, I mean, look, very, very little. We've just been through an election year where we talked almost not at all about the future. Very little of our politics now is about what our country needs to have, say, 20 years from now so that it can be strong, or what our grandchildren deserve that we need to work to give them. And I think that that's connected to the peculiar ways in which we are rejecting our history in this moment, too. To fail to see yourself as a link in that chain is not just to fail to venerate. It's a failure of concern for the future. And, you know, I, I think we can't really recover that without some attention paid to the kinds of things we're talking about here, which is some way of understanding ourselves as charged with passing something along. The statue that was unveiled, that was the occasion of Frederick Douglass's address, if I'm not mistaken, that's one of the ones that's now sort of under yep. criticism. And I, I understand the criticism, the design of the statue in hindsight is not ideal. But it is interesting that in, instead of 
preserving the task of preservation requires two things, right? It requires one appreciation for the good that it embodied, that the statue embodied. I think successful preservation also requires an acknowledgement of those who would who support the statue or whatever institution we're talking about. There has to be a capacity for acknowledging what might need to be repaired, either literally yeah. or figuratively. It requires both of those things. And I'm not sure that we're good at either of those things right now. Yeah, I think that's right, because they're connected, right? It's not a yes or no question. So whether you say yes or you say no, you're giving the wrong answer. I think that it's important to recognize that the life of a, of a free society is always a process of, of improving on itself, of building somehow on the good to address the bad. And that means seeing both the good and the bad. And our politics too often now is when it comes to thinking about our history is forced into a question of, is, the, is it good or is it bad? And again, the answer is yes. That's what it means to really be a traditionalist. Let's talk about one other aspect of gratitude in our constitutional government before we finish. And this has to do with the, the gratitude of a statesman. I've gone back lately to read Washington's farewell address, thinking that we'd be, we might be looking ahead to a farewell address, depending on how the election was going to sort out. And even now after the election, we don't know whether there'll yes. be a farewell address. But I was struck when I went back to Washington's farewell address a few weeks ago, I was struck by the themes of, of gratitude there, right? He, he frames the power that he's held for the last eight years as having been, as he says, clothed with that important trust. So he immediately, he already is identifying that this thing that he has had is not his, he's had it for others. Usually maintaining a trust is a job, you're doing it for the benefit of, of others. But Washington is grateful for this. He refers to, quote, that debt of gratitude, which I owe to my beloved country for the many honors it has conferred upon me, still more for the steadfast confidence with which it has supported me, and for the opportunities I have thence enjoyed of manifesting my inviolable attachment by services to the country. And so he is grateful for this thing that he's been given, even while he's the one who's been doing all the work, at least for the last eight years. And as I was thinking about statesmanlike gratitude, I went back to the Federalist and and in Federalist 57, which you've probably read inside and out, I can assure you I haven't. It's in the flyover country of the Federalist Papers. Madison talks about, in a discussion of the House of Representatives, he says that members of Congress will be motivated not just by ambition, which we always think of in terms of Federalist 51, but he refers at one point to gratitude, a spirit of gratitude that members of, of the House will have for the people that will elect them. And that that will help to animate them along with all the, the vices that normally animate politicians as well. Do we see gratitude among our elected officials? You talk to them more than I do. So I'll let you answer that question. Well, no, not generally. I'm sure there are exceptions. Look, I, I think what's striking about what Madison says there, and it's related to Washington's fellow address in a sense, is that it's connected to an idea of honor that is very foreign to us now. Washington is saying thank you for the honors that his country has conferred on him in the sense that they've done him a great service. They've given him more than he deserves. Now, there's some false humility in there. Surely, there's also some true humility in there. But there is a way that the chance to serve in that way is attractive to a person of ambition in such a way that it might leave them grateful. And I think Madison sees the same thing. He thinks that the elected officials will be ambitious people and that if you give them the chance to rise, 
to a position of honor, of prominence, of, you know, honor may, may be too high for what he means, really. Their gratitude for the chance to do that, to essentially gain that fame and let their ambition be realized, will make them more responsible. And that out of that will come some sense of responsibility and commitment to the people they serve. I think there is some of that in our politics. There is certainly a sense that, among some politicians at least, that they have an obligation and that the ability to serve in public office is something that they should appreciate and it comes with duties and responsibilities. But the high flying language that Washington uses, I think, actually clarifies the truth of the thing by connecting humility and gratitude, by showing that they're restraining forces in a sense. And remember, this is someone who's going home by choice, who's kind of imposed on himself a, a certain code of integrity. Mm-hmm. And I think that too is very much connected to the, the power of gratitude and of humility, the related power of those two. Those lines from Madison, by the way, I mean, that is coming just two papers after Federalist 55, which is the one that's increasingly quoted for its discussion of Republican virtues. And yeah. so it's not a singular occasion in Federalist 57 to bring it up. Obviously, the way I framed that question a moment ago about gratitude among politicians today, it was probably unfair. There is a good deal of gratitude among a great number of public officials. And what's interesting is it can be among the newest there, and it can be among the ones who have been there the longest. Washington, of course, right, is saying this at the end of his career. And you can see occasions for gratitude for those who've newly arrived and grateful for having been elected. But you could also see then that spirit of gratitude wasting away or being corroded away as the politician becomes more and more comfortable in his station. On the other hand, you could see somebody become more grateful the longer they're there. I think of John McCain in that respect, right? Who the longer he was in public service, the more by his own account, he became grateful for what his country had given him. And so it's two kinds of gratitude, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I think a person's character is revealed over time in in those kinds of jobs. And so if you're moved to think in terms of, of humility and honor and gratitude, as John McCain was, you'll be more and more so over time under the lights in Washington. And if you're not, then you won't. So I think those people who are who feel grateful at the beginning are probably also the people who will feel grateful at the end. They're the least cynical people in our politics, and we should be grateful for them. You've all, it's not often that I try to out-institutionalize you, but couldn't it also be the case that the institution itself, I mean, if Absolutely. done well, could shape, could shape somebody to become- Yeah, I mean, look, I think that's what Madison is saying, certainly. Yeah. And sure, if it's shaped in the right way itself, and if it understands itself to be formative in that way, then it can insti- instill an idea of integrity that comes with its own ideal of gratitude, too. We began this conversation with Washington's Thanksgiving proclamation. And as we were exchanging notes about this in advance, I looked back at, to an earlier document because Washington himself says that his proclamation is, is occasioned by a joint resolution of Congress, which I have to admit, I've never looked up. And so I did. It's in the, the old annals of Congress. And you see on Friday, September 25th of 1789, Representative, I've never said this name out loud, so I'll give it a try. Elias Budino, do you know <laughs> Budinot of New Jersey? He introduces a resolution in the House of Representatives for a, a national proclamation of Thanksgiving. And the Senate ultimately, a few days later, proves the same joint resolution. But on September 25th, there's just this very brief but entertaining debate. Budino proposes this, and then there's immediately objections. Congressman Adonis Burke of South Carolina says he worried that a, a congressional act in favor of a Thanksgiving 
would make, as he put it, a mere mockery of Thanksgivings. And then Tucker, Thomas Tucker, also of South Carolina, he says lines that ring maybe familiar today. He says, it's too soon to tell. It's too soon to be thankful. He says, quote, why should the president direct the people to do what perhaps they have no mind to do? They may not be inclined to return thanks for a constitution until they have experienced that it promotes their safety and happiness. We do not yet know, but they may have reason to be dissatisfied with the effects it has already produced. I mean, it's easy to laugh at that now. I was laughing when I read it, when I sent it over to you. And we can say, well, this looks a lot like our scene today. At the same time, let's give Tucker his due. It was pretty early to the extent that people saw it as sort of declaring victory or or mission accomplished or spiking the football or whatever modern metaphor we want. There is something to be said for Tucker to say, let's have patience and, and think this through. At the same time, as Washington says in his address, the very achievement of the Constitution was itself an achievement worth having gratitude for. But again, this all sounds so familiar to our times today, making Thanksgiving contingent upon the immediate sort of net net, the bottom line of these institutional arrangements and not being grateful for the institutions themselves. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I'd never seen that before. And I think it's just fantastic. I mean, it's reassuring in a way, you know, that this wasn't simply a generation of superhuman giants. And maybe we're not dwarves either. This is pretty much what would happen now. (laughs) I think it's wonderful. But at the same time, Washington's proclamation is so much deeper than what they're debating here. And I think gets it at a much more fundamental point at the idea that we have to begin with gratitude and that we'll build better if we do that. So that although surely we need to see if what we're trying to do works or fails, it's more likely to work if we start with the right frame of mind. And in that instance, as in so many others, I think we'd be wise to side with George Washington. And also to be grateful that our president was Washington, right? And somebody who could sort of transcend the immediacy of politics. As you've put it from time to time, we live in a fractured republic now. It feels at this moment more fractured than ever, which is saying something. Again, we're recording this a couple of weeks after election day, a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving. So I suppose in closing, I should ask, at this moment in time, how should Americans be grateful for these institutions? And what would you urge them to focus their minds on this Thanksgiving? Well, look, as you say, we are in a troubled time, though I think it's important to see that we're not more fractured than ever or irreparably fractured. In thinking about how to bring Americans together, I think it makes sense, as we've just said, to begin with gratitude, with the sense that we have inherited something wonderful that we share a common history that can help us to see why it's worth preserving what we have, and especially how the good in what we have can help us to take on the bad, which is an insight that I think we really need to recognize now in our politics. And ultimately, really just to see that we are awfully lucky that we get to be Americans together. And so we should do that. We should be Americans together. Obviously, no shortage of things to be grateful for. But since we're on an AEI podcast, I suppose this is as good a time as any to reiterate our gratitude for the people who have made AEI and this new program that you're leading possible. Absolutely. Well, thanks you all for joining us today. And I'll look forward to many more conversations on this in the future. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode. Happy Thanksgiving. And please join us again for the next episode of Unprecedented.